Welcome to Evidence to Excellence, news in neuroplasticity and rehab powered by The Recovery Project. We want to personally welcome and thank you for joining us today. We're glad that you're here because this podcast is designed to keep you updated on what's new in research and evidence in the neurorehabilitation world. Now, here's your host, Polly Swingle, CEO and co-owner of The Recovery Project. Welcome, everybody, to the next episode of Evidence to Excellence. My name is Polly Swingle, and I am a licensed physical therapist here in Michigan, and I work for a company called The Recovery Project. Uh, Before we get started into this fantastic topic for today, I want to thank all the listeners for continuing to listen to these podcasts. I am just so grateful and I think it's fantastic that people continually want to learn about the best way to provide rehabilitation to our patients. So thank you all for listening. So today we are going to talk about high intensity gait training. Now in the past, in these podcasts, we've talked about clinical practice guidelines and why we look at those in the world of rehab and why, especially here where we work at the Recovery Project, we do emphasize that it's super important that we provide evidence-based treatment, and a lot of this evidence-based treatment is based on the CPGs. So I want to give you guys, you know, some of you guys are like, well, what does that mean? What's CPG? So CPG stands for Clinical Practice Guidelines, and these are statements that include recommendations intended to optimize patient care. So they're formed by a systematic review of evidence and assessment of benefits and harms of alternative care options. So basically in in English, basically looking at that, that's where a group of people are looking at all of the evidence out there on a certain topic. Today we're going to talk about gait training. And what they do is they look at what evidence is high evidence, what is high, high has high validity, reliability. And they look at those outcomes to determine, is this the best way for people to get their care and get the most optimizing result in their outcome? So that's what CPG stands, stands for. And in January of 2020, the APTA, which is the American Physical Therapy Association, finalize their CPGs, clinical practice guidelines, on locomotive training. And let me read it to you. So the clinical practice guidelines to improve locomotor function following a chronic stroke, incomplete spinal cord, and brain injury. So these are some of the outcomes. These are the outcomes that we're going to talk about today and really share with you how we provide high-intensity gait training, why we do it, the research behind it, and the type of patients that should be receiving this type of care. So let's get into this. So today I have with me two individuals who do work for the Recovery Project. Matter of fact, they've been on this podcast before. So I have Kayla DeBald. Did I say that right? Okay, you guys, it's so hilarious because... Okay, Kayla, how do I say your last name? Diebold. Oh, my God. It's like German, and she's trying to tell me how to drop a vowel. Anyways, we have Kayla with us, and she is one of, she's a doctor of physical therapy, and she is one of our lead PTs here at the Recovery Project, and she is super valued. 
Um, she helps manage the Livonia Clinic, but she also was a valued member of our CSR program, which is our Comprehensive Stroke Rehab Program. I said that backwards. Comprehensive Rehab Stroke Program, which is a two-week intense program, five days a week, approximately six hours a day for people that have had strokes. And this is a program that we've talked about on multiple podcasts, but she was a key player in developing that program, which is based all on clinical evidence in CPGs. We also have with us today Megan Malley, who's also a doctor of physical therapy, and she is our director of program development. So I want to start with you, Megan, um, because... At the beginning of every year, you and I sit down and we talk about what should be our focus on program development. Now, let me just say that Megan is over all of our programs. If you just look at our website at www.therecoveryproject.net, you can see that we have many, many different medical programs under the neuro umbrella as well as under the orthopedic umbrella. And she oversees that. She assures that the clinical practice guidelines are being applied with all of our therapists and that our programs are marketed appropriately, but also are based on evidence. So at the end of last year, we kind of talked about, all right, what are we going to focus on? And she really wanted to focus on high-intensity gait training. So I want to ask you, why? Sure. So, well, first, thanks for having me, Polly. Um, Excited to talk about this topic. So as you mentioned, you know, one of our core values and something that we really have um, feel strongly about at the Recovery Project and is a foundation of what we do is evidence-based practice and really following the evidence for our programs. And like you mentioned, this clinical practice guideline came out in 2020. And although we have been incorporating principles of high-intensity gait training um, in various programs, like in our CSR program for stroke recovery, we really didn't have a really robust, structured program around high-intensity gait training. And the evidence is just so strong that this is what our clients really need to see the outcomes that we're trying to achieve. And the evidence just keeps coming out more and more keeps coming out over the years showing things like, you know, while balance interventions, for example, are very helpful, they don't necessarily always translate into improvements in gait. Whereas high intensity gait training interventions not only help with gait, but can help with balance and other factors that we're working on. So you're going to get the most kind of bang for your buck. And it's, it's really what we need to be doing for our patients to get the best outcomes. So let, let's let get right into this. Um, I know that, as you just said, there is more and more evidence. It seems like every time a new journal comes out, there is always an article mm-hmm. research on high-intensity gait. So I want you to tell us a little bit about that, but really... What does intensity mean? What does it look like? If you can elaborate a little bit more on locomotion training, gait training, however you want to describe that, share a little bit of that evidence. Sure. So, you know, the terms moderate to high intensity gait training is what's used in this clinical practice guideline. And 
regarding like walking function and improving walking function in certain patient populations. And so that's really achieved through large amounts of structured and graded walking practice delivered at cardiovascular intensities that aim to reach 70 to 85 percent of the individual's maximum heart rate. And so there's a there's a few different ways we can calculate this to have kind of targets, but the easiest way is to look at an age-predicted maximum heart rate. So 220 minus the individual's age is their age-predicted max heart rate. And then working at intensities that get you between 70 and 85% of that maximum heart rate is what is deemed moderate to high intensity. And this strategy really utilizes key principles of neuroplasticity including specificity, amount, and intensity of motor training. And the the reason that's important is because it strengthens those neural pathways um, that contribute to locomotor function and lead to long-term changes in mobility. So those higher cardiovascular demands drive that neural activity, which ultimately results in improved walking and gait function. So one thing I wanted you to share with the audience is that looking around our clinics, I am seeing some immediate changes. Now, when Megan is focused on something and she's sharing all of this information for all of our staff, um, she really goes in 100%. So I'm noticing heart rate charts, (laughs) board charts. Kind of elaborate a little bit on that and why you're doing the education, which I get why, but why are those charts now very accessible to our therapists? Well, you know, we know that just human, uh, you know, nature is that behavior can be hard to change. And our therapists are so dedicated and so focused on, on treating their patients. But, you know, we all get into kind of our rhythms of how we do certain things. And we might think that we're really pushing intensity, and maybe we are, but are we really looking at the numbers? Are we really tracking heart rate and tracking rates of perceived exertion? So one of just the little tools we're trying to use is a really easy visual reminder of a scale up on the wall in various places in the clinic so that it helps the therapist remember to look at that and to actually get Um, concrete data of like how hard is this person working what's their heart rate or what's their level of exertion so that you know we don't just think we're pushing people hard enough but we actually can back it up with data and the other nice thing is that for our clients they can see okay what is that and and why is that important it's a nice tool to educate them about why this is important what is needed in order to maximize their recovery. So teaching them about how to check their own heart rate and why we're pushing them at such a high intensity. Yeah, I I, I totally agree. So what type of patients would benefit from this type of high-intensity gait training? So the clinical practice guideline that we're discussing was based on studies involving individuals with a history of stroke, brain injury or incomplete spinal cord injury um, of greater than six months who are already ambulatory. But the great thing is that we really can utilize this information with a wide variety of patients. So, you know, for example, in our um, CSR program for stroke patients, we are utilizing high intensity gait training. If the individual comes in and they're walking at a slower speed of less than 0.2 meters per second, on the 10-meter walk test, we focus intensity on other interventions versus high-intensity gait training um, to really push that cardiovascular intensity. Um, But if they're walking at speeds greater than 0.2 meters per second, we immediately put them into the high-intensity gait training program. 
Additionally, there's a lot of benefits seen in other patient populations. So studies have shown that this is really effective for people with Parkinson's disease and that um, it not only can reduce the motor severity, but moderate to high-intensity training can improve um, gait and balance and their um, ADLs and overall quality of life. And um, it also has been shown to be safe and effective for individuals with multiple sclerosis. And I think that that's really eye-opening for a lot of people because, you know, the traditional um, theory was that, you know, you shouldn't push people with MS that hard and you could actually cause more damage and it'd be more fatiguing. But studies have shown that individuals with MS can tolerate high levels of exercise as long as they are interspersed with rest breaks, so more of like interval training, and that the outcomes are actually really favorable as compared to lower intensity training. Um, Additionally, there was three studies that showed evidence that walking interspersed with rest breaks for people with MS resulted in better walking performance than just continuous walking without rest breaks. So, you know, overall, Consensus is that this is great for a variety of individuals with neurological conditions like those that we see here at the Recovery Project. Yeah, and I, and I love that research on you know MS because I agree with you. So many of the patients that suffer from MS you know, have poor endurance. They mm-hmm. fatigue real quickly. And again, I think it goes back to the importance for PTs and OTs to really educate that patient on the evidence that, look at, this is what it's showing. And and really, once they kind of get over that hump, doing exercise like this will help with their endurance and their fatigue levels. Yeah, and people people are often coming to us, too, asking for what what is safe, what's appropriate and what's safe. And, you know, we need to educate people that, this is safe and that if they want to really manage their condition long-term knowing they're going to be living with this, that it's our job to tell them that it's not only safe, but it's an, it's effective and they, and ways they can do this at home, not just when they're, you know, with us. Exactly. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit about evidence. Now, my gosh, I've been in this field now for 36 years and there has been so many different approaches. Let's just say it this way to gate training. Um, which has evolved just incredibly in in my career. But some of the hot topics right now in gait training are, um, you know, we'll talk a little bit about overground, like the importance of walking overground. We're going to talk a little bit about body weight support treadmill training. You guys, that is where you're over a treadmill, you're harnessed over the treadmill. And that helps kind of hold you up, helps with your balance. And then we increase that speed to get more steps and that intensity in. I want to talk a little bit about robotic because in the past probably 10 to 15 years, there's been a lot of different devices out there to work on robotic gait training. And I think what we're starting to see, especially in our industry, is people are doing studies in comparing robotic training versus overground versus body weight support training. So let me ask you if you know, let's talk about robotic training versus therapy assist. You know, looking at gait, speed, symmetry, endurance, what kind of research is out there that supports this? Sure, yeah, this was something that was definitely looked at heavily when the um, team through the APTA was putting together these clinical practice guidelines because like you said this became a very like hot topic and and really wanting to see if robotics um, were helpful they're also very expensive so you know 
customers, hospital systems, businesses like ours want to know, are they really more effective if we're going to invest in this? So, you know, the, the conclusions basically are that robotic systems and body weight supported systems can be beneficial for certain things. Like they may be indicated to allow for someone who's non-ambulatory yet to, you know, safely stand or, or, or walk, get some weight bearing. But really that prioritizing, you know, movement quality with like a robotic system does not really appear to improve movement quality when you're outside of that robotic system. And it does not improve functional outcomes when compared to treatments that focus on intensity and dosage, such as a high-intensity gait training program. So, you know, we hear, like, practice makes perfect, but really that's not the case in this situation. That perfect practice does not really lead to better outcomes and that we really need to allow for individuals to make errors and that promotes motor learning that, you know, it's okay if they scuff their toe for a second and then catch themselves or it's okay if their step length is shorter on one side where if we have a robot forcing them into perfect gate symmetry and perfect gate mechanics, um, that learning isn't taking place and it's not translating once they're off the device. And additionally, it's also just this innate process that we've seen in research that we short, sort of just kind of shut off. If we have something helping us, even if we think we're working just as hard, we kind of start to slack a little bit and let the machine or the therapist mm-hmm. do the work for us. And then intensity goes down and that motor learning you know, decreases. Yeah, and I think it, it goes back to the importance of monitoring heart rate, mm-hmm. using the Bohr scale, the RPE scales, to really know what that intensity is because... I agree with you. I mean, I've worked with patients that all of a sudden, you you know, their heart rate doesn't move at all or they're working at a level three. They're having a full-blown conversation. They're not even breathless. And you kind of realize the machine's doing all the work. So it's passive. Right. Yeah. And, and I think the science is, which makes sense to me, that we have to contract our muscles, stimulate the nervous system to get neuroplasticity. Yeah. And so yeah, really exactly. that passive really is not beneficial. And it's it's nice to see that the evidence is out there now really, really supporting that. One of another really hot topic, at least in our world of physical therapy, is dosage. Mm-hmm. And I know that here we talk about it all the time. So is there some evidence out there or recommendations on dosage of performing this high-intensity locomotive training? Yeah, you know, that's a really good question. And and one thing that I've heard recently and and described in this way that really resonated with me was someone describing this as a professional epidemic of underdosage. And I think that that is very accurate. And while it may have been intentionally, like initially well-meaning, thinking, oh, we need to be careful and not push push people too hard – Well, we found out, you know, through research, people are actually very capable of a lot more than we give them credit for, and we're doing them a disservice by not pushing them enough um, and increasing dosage. So, you know, very general, like, CDC guidelines are that individuals should be reaching 10,000 steps per day for overall health and wellness if you're just an average American, but that chronic stroke survivors are actually getting about less than 3,500 steps per day, if they're even ambulatory. 
and sedentary adults, even without a stroke, um, get less than 5,000 steps per day. So, you know, ideally, we really need to be pushing this much more than we are. And even in therapy, the number of steps in a general conventional PT session, research has shown to be less than 900 steps, where that is clearly not going to boost you to this 10,000 step per day goal. So studies comparing kind of conventional PT with high intensity gait training showed that high intensity gait training is getting up to 4,000 steps per session versus 900. And really you need 2,000 to 6,000 steps to really reach that level of neuroplasticity. So our goal is to work with our clients to build up to a 30 minute session of high intensity gait training on the treadmill and then follow up with that off the treadmill for, you know, about 10 minutes or so of overground walking or overground activities or maybe um, high intensity stair training on the steps, things like that. So we know that if someone's really deconditioned, it might take time to build up to that, but really pushing that dosage is necessary. Yeah, and, and, and I agree with you. And I think that, you know, we are very fortunate that we can spend an hour with right. a patient here. And I know that not everybody has that luxury, I guess, to be able to do that. But I, I agree with you. I, I, I think that what we're seeing is it is so much underdosing that people have so many, I always say, tools in your toolbox to work with somebody that's had a stroke and that, you know, yeah, they may have a balance issue or, or yeah, their extremity may be weak on one side and they're working on those strengthening exercises. But the importance of really if the goal is to improve walking, and we're going to get into this with Kayla in a minute about, you know, the biomechanics or the kinematics of, of the gait cycle. And, and I know when I went to school, and was taught that that's what we're supposed to correct. Right. And the science really has changed that that is not the case, which we're going to get into that. But one of the things I wanted to mention is, you know, now that we are saying really need to focus on 30 minutes of really high intense moving over to overground walking, but also that importance that if you have an hour, we're very beneficial. We can add that FES Mm -hmm. to prep and and stimulate the central nervous system before we get into a high high gait. So there's some of these other pieces of evidence out there to really help with that neural neuroplasticity. Yeah, and one other thing I just have to throw yeah, in there ahead. too is that I think it's important to note and you know for us that have been practicing for a while we see this um on a bigger scale and we've seen the insurance limitations really play a role in how long somebody's in therapy and so I think it's important to remember that we really need to be strategic about maximizing our time with people because you know it's a real problem that someone could have a ankle sprain and get the same amount of visits in therapy as they could for having a massive stroke or a spinal cord injury. So being on top of the evidence and really structuring your sessions based on what we know research shows is going to give that client the maximum benefit is it is really our job and we should be taking that really seriously because we should everyone deserves to get the most out of every single session that that they're given by their, you know, insurance provider. So, you know, if you can't, if you don't have access to be able to have sessions that, you know, that long or equipment to be able to use, you know, 30 minutes on a treadmill, thinking of ways to just push somebody's heart rate up and to get that higher intensity, um, is just going to be the most beneficial, you know, and to emphasize per day, right. You know, and again, just like you said, you know, no longer is there the luxury 
of somebody coming into therapy five days a week. And so really that importance, and I know that we work with our therapists a lot on that importance of education. You know, in our world, it's the home exercise program, but really talking to the patient about on the days that you're not here, and yeah, we're trying to push the, you know, maybe 4,000 steps or 6,000 steps with you of what does that look like at home and how can you do that at home? What is so nice now, we have Apple Watches, we have other devices that can count our steps that we can just look at and see what our heart rate up and really adding that piece of education to the patient, to the caregiver to say, hey, this is where you need to be at and really looking at those steps. So we do have a lot of those tools, but again, that dosage is so, so important that we as the healthcare professional need to educate those patients. So I'm going to move over and talk to Kayla here because, you know, one of the things that Megan mentioned and I also mentioned is really looking at motor learning and looking at, we say in our world, that quality of gait. And, um, you know, there's a little, there's a lot of science out there on the benefits of this high intense gait training on really correcting some of those gait abnormalities that we may see if somebody has a stroke or so on and so forth. So Kayla, I'm going to move to you and I want to talk a little bit about motor learning. So why don't we first talk about what are some of the biomechanical problems we see with stroke or with the typical central nervous system injury and why don't you kind of break it down and talk a little bit about the reduced speed, maybe the reduced ability to advance one of the extremities if you have weakness on one side, you know, collapsing, you know, the knee buckling, that kind of stuff. So I'm going to give, turn it over to you and tell us what you know. Yeah, so I feel like when you think about gait problems, especially with neurologic conditions, you're really looking at like two different buckets. You're looking at your stance phase issues when you're standing on that limb, and then you're looking at your swing phase issues when you are trying to advance that limb forward. So when we're thinking about like stance phase, you need to have that stability and that confidence in that limb to be able to bring that other leg forward. So in stance, a lot of times we're seeing difficulty with um, postural control and postural stabilization. So that might be upper body, uh, core, hips, those sorts of things. And then we're also seeing a lot of knee hyperextension to try and compensate for those weaknesses down the chain. Um, Those sorts of Things will impact someone's center of gravity over their base of support. If you think about um, that knee hyperextension thrust that we often see in stance that kind of pushes somebody backwards and throws them off balance as they're trying to advance that other limb. Um, Like you said, too, we do see that knee buckling in stance if somebody doesn't have that strength or stability in their leg um, and their body hasn't tried the cheat code, the compensation of the knee hyperextension, you'll see some buckling. A lot of times somebody with that issue will see trying to compensate with like an AFO of some sort um, to try and help them with their stability and gait. But then if you look over at swing phase, you see more issues with um, kind of having a decreased step length, not being able to clear the foot as you're advancing the limb. Um, You see poor propulsion forward. So you have all those issues that are making you a less efficient walker, a less balanced walker, a more fearful walker because you've probably fallen, um, and you're just not able to keep up and move around as much as you want. Right. 
and while I haven't been out of school as long as both of you, I was still taught, you know, you see those things at eval and you work on just that part task, that part practice, and really what the CPG and all the evidence that's come out is don't do that. We're going to work on incorporating everything together. Exactly, exactly. So let's kind of elaborate on that on motor learning. What is it? What are some of the practices, intensity? How does that support motor learning? What's the theory? Yeah, so I think the main theory that I kind of look to, and I learned this in some of my continuing education courses, especially my concentrated stroke rehab specialist um, certification was the optimal theory for motor learning. So that was um, published back in 2016 and they did a great job kind of breaking it into simpler parts. Um, I use this a lot when I have students as well to try and explain my approach to setting up a session. How do I change um, challenges? How do I communicate with my patients to try and optimize that motor learning? Um, so three of the main focus areas for the optimal um, theory for motor learning are enhanced expectancies, autonomy, and um, external focus. So that enhanced expectancies is trying to like build up that confidence, you know, making that person believe that they're going to be able to succeed. I also try to address when I'm talking about this with patients, you know, I want you to fail to a certain extent. You don't want to be perfect when we are walking or doing our overground tasks because we're not going to be engaging the brain as much. We need to have some of that error to light up the brain to get the cerebellum involved as well. When we look at autonomy, that's giving choices and trying to increase the engagement of the client in their session. You know, if they tell me at eval they want to be able to walk their dog and go kayaking, we're going to try and pick activities that are similar to that and maybe on a given day, okay, I have XYZ idea, which one sounds most important to you today? What order would you like to do them in? A lot of these clients are coming in having lost a lot of their autonomy in their daily life. So I think our rehab sessions is a great opportunity to start practicing taking some of that autonomy back. And then that third one I talked about was external focus. Um, and that kind of ties into the CPG and what we were all taught of part practice, focusing on that minor detail. If you need to lift your leg, lift your leg, lift your leg, that's not as beneficial as, okay, I want you to put your foot on top of the step. Give them some sort of external focus, some sort of external cue to try and get them to achieve the goal. And if that cue's not working, pick a different cue. There's 101 ways you can work on lifting the leg without having to say, lift your leg. Right, right. I love that, you know, and we on privately always talk about how do we motivate our patient. Mm -hmm. And what you just said was so interesting, and that's why you're such an effective therapist, because it is about talking to the patient and what is important to you so that they want to come they want to participate, and then they will see the outcomes. And it's so important that sometimes, you know, you have 10 people on your schedule, and you're like, I have a plan. This is what I'm going to do. I know Kayla's laughing. You guys don't see this. But it's so true, right? For the therapist out there that's listening, we're like, today I'm going to focus on this with all of my patients because that sometimes just makes in our head a little bit easier to get through our day. But to back up a minute. 
and say, hold on, let's have these conversations and mm -hmm. say, what is important to you? Because they will show up and they will get those outcomes that we are all so compassionate about that we want our patients to get better. So I want to talk a little bit more about this error augmentation. Um, how do we address this? How do we incorporate that in a treatment session? Can you give some examples? Yeah, so the, it's, again, another thing that I talk to not only my students but my clients about is, you know, we don't want to have that perfect practice. And sometimes, you know, if somebody is compensating when they're walking, there's ways that we can work on those stance and swing phase issues um, without verbally or hands-on cueing. So a lot of times if somebody, say they're circumducting a lot, I'm going to try and make that look worse to try and cue their body to fix the problem, right? So I might be on the treadmill with somebody. I'm going to put a resistance band on that leg that's circumducting and pull them more to the outside and say, fight against the band, okay? Try and keep your foot on the treadmill belt because a lot of times they're stepping off that treadmill and mm -hmm. then that's a problem. And then we'll do that for a period of time and then I'll reduce my resistance. And you'll see they kind of overcompensate and then they come back to like a more true normal. And you can do that with a variety of different therabands, with um, different ankle weights, with bungees, you know, all sorts of things. We have a therapist here who's always wrapping therabands around different ways, and he's super creative, and it's all to try and get that error augmentation to overcorrect. And we know we need to activate the cerebellum, and that's what our true focus is for motor learning is getting that cerebellum involved. So it's going to see the problem, it's going to try and fight the problem, overcorrect, and then try to come back to a more true normal. And that's why working on that high-intensity gait training not only improves just their gait speed, but the gait quality of their gait. So, you know, the first thing when you said that came to my mind is, a TheraBand, an ankle weight, not expensive equipment, guys. <laughs> you know, where a lot of the times it's like, well, my clinic doesn't have that kind of equipment. Mm -hmm. And it's really being creative and saying, oh, yeah, we, we all have TheraBand, everybody. And we all have an ankle weight that we can kind, we can think of a way to apply these principles. So I know that we have a lot of other physical therapists that listen to these podcasts. We have physicians. We have people that are in the rehab world, as well as a lot of people that maybe know somebody that's had a stroke or a, a TBI or the patient themselves. So here is the big question. How do we apply these principles of high-intensity gait training in a clinic? And, you know, can you give us some examples on some examples of maybe how do we increase speed? You know, how, how do we do these? What are some treatment ideas that a patient or a therapist can take away from this podcast and implement in their lives. Yeah. Um, and before I kind of get into that, one thing I think about too, when I, when the CPG first came out was, well, I'm going to walk with them. That doesn't feel very skilled. Right. So this yeah. is where that skill really comes in. Cause you know, if someone's just watching me on my session, I don't look like I'm working hard because I'm making my client work hard. But there's a lot of skill in trying to make sure we're monitoring heart rate and RPE to get that intensity and then using, you know, these simple just modifications to get that intensity. So, for example, with the CSR program, the Concentrated Stroke Rehab Program, we've had a lot more um, younger people coming through that program in their 30s and 40s who might not have as many comorbidities. So it takes a lot more for me to get their heart rate up. So if I'm on the treadmill and we're already walking at 
2.5 miles an hour, I'm going to start increasing our incline. I'm going to have us walking backwards because that's also been found to get that heart rate up higher. We're going to add resistance bands to overground walking. We're going to add some sort of cognitive load because that's going to increase um, like that cardiac demand as well, which was surprising to me at how significant like a cognitive load actually increase somebody's heart rate. But if I don't have time to run, get a piece of equipment, I'm going to add a dual task and see if that accomplishes the goal for me. Um, Megan already mentioned a couple times, but ascending and descending stairs. So adding some sort of obstacle negotiation, um, getting those, you know, weights added to the legs, changing directions, giving like multi-step commands. So I'm going to tell you three things I want you to do, go do it and like track that progress as well. So you don't need a lot of equipment for any of this stuff. It's just modify, add, you know, make them think a little bit more. Well, one of the things that Megan talked about, and we were talking about this before we started the podcast is gate speed. And we talked about, you know, somebody that is walking slower than 0.2 meters per second. Mm -hmm. And Kayla was sharing with me, you guys, some really great ideas because I said to her, all right, so really not going to benefit putting them maybe on the body weight support treadmill system because you as the therapist, and I love Kayla, what you just said is you don't have to work so hard. And I remember the days when I was seeing patients eight hours a day, I would come home exhausted Mm -hmm. because I was doing all the work. So love that because we have to also preserve our bodies, but also (laughs) transferring that makes so much sense. Transferring that, that the patient needs to be doing the work. It's not the therapist Mm -hmm. that needs to be doing all of the work, but talk a little bit about, so somebody walks, you do the 10 meter walk test, they're walking less than 0.2 miles per hour. So it's not beneficial to put them up on that treadmill and you, the therapist moving their leg the whole time. Can you share then what's your focus and some examples of those activities? Yeah, so it's it's not to say that they're never going to get on the treadmill right. and walk, right? Um, but if we're really trying to get that neuroplasticity engaged, the motor learning engaged, we still want to be able to get to that high intensity. So we're still going to be tracking RPE and heart rate, but it's going to look a little different. So do we spend 10, 15 minutes on the new step doing some cardiac priming to get um, that increased blood flow and the neurotrophic factors to the brain? And then do we go to a mat or the parallel bars and do some sort of functional circuit training? Do we, you know, have you roll from supine to right sideline back and forth for a minute and then we'll do the other side for a minute. We'll do some sit to stands. We'll transfer to your chair and back. You know, those functional mobility tasks they need to be able to do. And even if somebody's non-ambulatory, rolling bed mobility, side prop to sit, um, any sort of, you know, upper extremity ergometer, or we use a zoom ball here a lot, anything Mm -hmm. to try and get that heart rate up, building up that endurance so that as they progress in their recovery, then we can start adding more and more of that gait training in. And, you know, can I piggyback on that real quick too? I think one of the things I try to be aware of frequently when we're talking about programming and this high intensity gait training we're implementing is that I'm a physical therapist, so I'm looking at everything through the lens of a PT. But when we're implementing this, we also have clinicians who are not PTs, and they're OTs, and they're speech pathologists. And so one of my jobs that I always think about is how can I help them implement this when they're looking at it from a different discipline? And um, and so you know that makes me think what you're saying, Kayla, is that we, I talked about this with some of our speech pathologists and our OTs, like, okay, what barriers are you having working on high intensity? And um, one of the OTs brought up, you know, when lower 
lower functional level patients, you know, it's it can be challenging. But then she also talked about how the way she's implementing it in her OT sessions is interval training and doing circuit training. Yeah. And so we talked about, okay, well, how can you translate that if somebody, you know, it doesn't have that endurance or is lower functional status and they can still get the heart rate up doing the things Kayla just mentioned. So it's a perfect way to translate these same principles. Although these CPGs are for the, for physical therapists, we still know that this is what clients will benefit from um, and why they need to benefit, get their heart rate up to those intensities. So other disciplines can use the same principles. And one of our speech pathologists was so, you know, great and creative and thinking of like, okay, how can I, how can I work on this in my sessions? Maybe I have them, you know, really keep pushing um, their length of time they're working on a task or um, a speaking task and standing while they're doing it. So it's getting their heart rate up before I have them take a seated rest break and then looking at that RPE and getting them to push the RPE a little bit more the next time. So, you know, just different strategies to take these same principles you're talking about and modify them to meet your needs if you're not a PT. So... I think outside the box. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. because the majority of these patients that we see with neurological deficits are seeing multiple disciplines Mm -hmm. at the time. So I love that. Is there anything, the two of you, the experts that I have here, that I didn't ask you that you want to share with our audience? I I would just share that the um, neuro section of the APTA has great resources on the CPG. They have a whole toolbox area for clinician resources and patient resources and they really lay out what the guidelines are very clearly to explain it to not only your patient but maybe your coworkers to try and get a little bit more buy-in so I would recommend anybody go and look there mm-hmm. if they want to start this sort of program yeah I would also say that you know don't feel discouraged if you've been doing a million other things in your sessions and you've been doing a lot of pre-gate activities or balance activities or other things because it doesn't mean it hasn't been beneficial to your to your patient but we also know there's this huge knowledge translation gap of like when we learn something and when we really implement it in the clinic and so you know that's why I felt we needed to really stress this this year because okay we've known this knowledge now and we're a leader in neural rehab we need to really put it into play so if we you know know better, we do better. I don't know who originally said that, but some famous person. So just start, you know, what I encouraged our team was don't be overwhelmed by it. Just start with one person. Like, who do you have on your schedule right now where you think, okay, I'm just going to talk to them about why this is important to get their buy-in and then just start monitoring their heart rate, monitor their RP and see what happens. If you can push it a little bit, see if you notice a different outcome with them and then just use that as a springboard to start finding ways to implement it with other clients. I love that. Well, I want to thank you both. This has been so informative, and I'm sure that um, we will continue to talk about these CPGs and continue to bring to our audience the evidence out there for rehabilitation. So thanks again, guys, and just remember to follow us on our social media channels on Facebook and Instagram. And then once again, if you want some more information, our website is www dot the recovery project.net and we'll see you next time thanks thank you for listening to today's evidence to excellence news and neuroplasticity and rehab podcast we appreciate you and hope that you come back every fourth tuesday of the month to get more of what's new in evidence and research in the neuro rehabilitation world to learn more about the recovery project or to find out what we're up to next you can visit us anytime at the recovery project.net